Well, Patty, it's always uh, fun having Jonathan Rossi on to talk about surcharging and all the legal stuff. Oh, it's crazy. Really cool. Huh? I was, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, another one bites the dust. Kansas is down, three more states, but you know, we're surcharging still is precarious, uh, legally precarious. But I, I think Jonathan's uh, optimism is is well founded. I think those are going to fall pretty soon. I do. So I would say if you are, if you have any involvement in passing the cost of processing onto the consumer and you want to know what the state law is saying about it, you want to understand surcharging, cash discounting, any of these options, um, this is really a must listen episode because as you know, Patty mentioned, the state of Kansas uh, folding to Cardex and allowing them to do their surcharging program there. Um, and then tell us about the insiders report today, Patty. Uh, we're talking about uh, retailer plans and in terms of technology, you know, how they're trying to engage customers more. And, and what this means for small and mid-sized merchants in terms of the market opportunity. Yes. I think there's a great opportunity there. And then James, uh, you had a really cool question that you addressed. Uh, want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I've just noticed really this trend. We've had a lot of um, ISOs and uh, clients of ours that are reaching out about their proposals and saying, we want to display cash discounting or technology or things like that on the cover page and kind of, you know, really this next evolution of what I would even call a presentation. When you're going to a merchant now, they're really looking for something more than a spreadsheet. They want something as a presentation. So I really just talk about that and how to be more strategic there uh, and kind of getting away from the vanilla spreadsheet and working with marketing uh, companies to really make it more strategic and get your point across quicker with that presentation good stuff jen so what do you say we get going let's go welcome to the merchant sales podcast all right everybody so we are here with our good friend and returning guest jonathan Rossi, ceo at cardex how you doing there jonathan good good great to be with you again absolutely always great to have you on uh so of course big the news legal mind of surcharging <laughs> That's how I think of you, Jonathan. I, mean, I appreciate that. I'll have to earn it. Hopefully in this conversation, you'll feel the same way. You're probably also like, you know, one of the most highly educated people we've had. You know? oh, that's so kind of you. That's so kind of you. Thanks. Well, I love being on. I love being on with you both. You, you both do a great job. You have such a passionate and engaged audience. You always have. You've been great to us through the years. So I'm pleased to be back on. Awesome. So obviously passing the cost of processing onto the consumer. This is a hot topic, probably the most hot topic, you know, the hottest topic, I would say, in the last 12 to 24 months. Um, and here we have some big news. Uh, Cardex just scored a big victory in the state of Kansas. So, um, you know, Jonathan, you've been on the podcast several times, so we don't need the backstory there. But can you give us a little update on Cardex? How are things going? And then give us a little context about what happened in Kansas. I appreciate it. And, you know, when this happened, uh, James and Patty, I knew I wanted to come on and discuss it. I think I emailed you the night of actually. Right, so I really believe it was. <laughs> De definitely, definitely. You know, uh, th thanks for the question about Cardex. Cardex is doing great for a couple reasons. One of which is in this economic environment, cutting costs has become a priority for many businesses. And right. that's really making our message very resonant. So many are looking to pass on their credit card processing fees. They want to do it without added complexity or liability. That's where we come in. And Cardex is all about automatic compliance, as you know. And I'm excited to talk about the result in our case in Kansas. I, I was really honored to be a part of it. You know, uh, it's historic. And for all time now, when we come on the show in the future, you and I, and when anyone is talking about the history of no surcharge laws, this case really goes right in that conversation. And we're pleased the federal courts recognize the precedent. Uh, they held that Kansas's no surcharge law was unconstitutional as applied to Cardex's pricing model, Cardex's software. So now we are able to enter our 47th state. We already have done, in fact. 
And we're really pleased also that the federal courts recognized the benefits of our solution to businesses and consumers mm-hmm. and the importance of the First Amendment. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. So um, I want to do something a little different in, in this uh, episode, because of course, we've already had you on several times to talk about, you know, it seems like there's this uh, history of just kind of victory after victory here, which is fantastic. Um, but I want to do a little bit of a different angle today, because, you know, there's so many topics around this idea of passing the cost of processing onto the consumer. Um, I took some time, as you know, Jonathan, to read the entire court document that you sent. And, you know, I wish we had four or five hours to, you know, really right. go through it, but I want to really highlight some of the key things and, and really hopefully leverage your expertise to educate our audience a little bit. So I wanted to start off with two things that I think kind of go together. First of all, if you could talk about this concept of um, commercial speech rights, you know, free speech as it, as it applies to a business, commercial free speech rights, mm-hmm. and then also maybe touch on the Supreme Court. I noticed in the document that the Supreme Court case, Expressions Hair Design, that precedent was mentioned along with this uh, commercial speech right. So can you educate our audience a little bit about what that is and how that applies to surcharge bans? I'm happy to do it. Yeah, th- that really goes back to 2017 when we served as amicus in the challenge to the New York law that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court held at that time that if a state law allows discounts for cash, but prohibits surcharges for credit, it's a regulation of protected commercial speech under the First Amendment. And that's because charging less for cash and charging more for credit are economically identical. It really comes down to how you choose to frame the price or how you choose to communicate the price. And that is speech. So once we had that precedent, the question since that time, since 2017 has been, is it a permissible speech regulation? There are some valid regulations of commercial speech in our society, but there are also some that go too far, some that go way too far in the case of no surcharge laws. So we had the legal precedent, James, but there's a way in which this Kansas case I feel is very unique. And that is that the other cases were led by merchants as plaintiffs. Here, we as a surcharging provider were the Mm. plaintiff. And I think that this case really shows that the product leader is in a unique position to move the regulatory strategy forward. And here's why, you know, this was very intentional on our part. I had the idea that if we took this approach, we would be able to preempt the objections that we commonly saw from the states in the other no surcharge litigations. So what were those? There were really two. The first is if you allow surcharges, there are gonna be surprise fees. Customers won't even be told they're paying a fee until they walk out of the store, let's say, they see they were charged more than what they thought. The second is if you allow surcharges, businesses will charge fees way in excess of what they actually pay for processing. They'll use the surcharge as a profit center. That's something that states had speculatively raised as an objection in the other litigations. So I knew we had the strong legal precedent, but I felt that if we grounded it in real world facts about our solution, how our solution actually works in practice, we in fact even included screenshots of Lightbox, that's our online payment form, uh, screenshots of our terminal signage in the factual record that all went before the judge, And I knew that if we did that, it'd be an even stronger case. It would really show that consumer benefit and transparency is at the heart of the model. And you would see how clear and effective the disclosures are. Going back to, like I said, those objections we wanted to preempt, you would see that with our model, uh, the surcharge is always equal to what the merchant pays us for processing. They don't profit from it. And in fact, they couldn't abuse it if they wanted to. So what was really key to this case is how Cardex works. And that theory paid off. The ruling is not saying, any which way you cut it, the law is unconstitutional. Rather, the court held that 
the law is unconstitutional as applied to Cardex's software, it, it leaves open the possibility that if the fact pattern were different, there could be enforcement sure. uh, down the road. But we grounded this in real world facts about our solution. And one of the benefits was both parties, including the state of Kansas, actually agreed that our speech was truthful and non-misleading. And that brings me right back to your question. Once you're in the province of government banning truthful and non-misleading speech, you have a very strong First Amendment case. Right, right. You know, Jonathan, I've heard in several of these surcharging cases, um, you know, state, state prohibition, about how they are uh, unconstitutionally vague. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, and this, you know, that's a little arcane, I think, for a lot of us. Can you maybe explain what that means? And also, you know, if you could touch on, you know, what it means in terms of due process, um, you know, right? I mean, there's a certain due process that's allowed uh, merchants and, and processors um, that should be in place if these laws are written correctly, correct? Absolutely. Uh, I would have to let you use the word arcane. I think it's perfect. I would have to let the lawyers tell you all the detail about that doctrine under the 14th Amendment, because it can be technical. But if right. we just talk about vagueness in a non-technical way, I think it does make sense. Mm -hmm. And the, the question is, do you even know what the law means? Do you know what it bans and what it allows? Like, let's use an analogy. If it's illegal to say it's colder in Chicago, but it's legal to say it's warmer in Florida, that's the essence of a no surcharge law, right? It's, right? It seems very easy to get that wrong. And when it comes to vagueness, I know a lot of business owners through the years have had a lot of anxiety about training all of their employees, all of their customer service reps or their salespeople to use exactly the right term in describing a mm -hmm. price differential if they have this no surcharge law hanging over, over their head. And no one really wants to do that. It has a very chilling effect. And that's part of why vagueness is a problem. Because if you take First Amendment rights seriously, and people don't know where the line is, they won't say anything at all. It has a very chilling effect on their speech. And that's a very bad policy outcome under First Amendment jurisprudence and under even a common sense morality, right? And the judge in this case, I should say, fairly pointed out that we didn't enter the state until now. We believed that the law applied to us. We intentionally sought uh, what's called a declaratory judgment, clarifying our rights under the law. Now that we have that, it allows us to enter the state. And that's what we have done. Yeah, I think it's I think it's so interesting because this idea of, you know, this vagueness, it really does have a big impact. I mean, you look at some of the cash discount programs and all the confusion that exists there. And, you know, a lot of that is around, well, we have a sign and it says this, but if the employee says something else and it's like, wow, you know, can't we get a law here that says this is allowed and this is not allowed. And so I like that you you know, took that approach and really, uh, I, I believe, did a great job working with them. And then the courts, of course, really clarifying what was allowed and what wasn't allowed. I thought it was really nice. I agree. You know, you think about the example about cash discount. If you take a tr you know, true cash discount, raise the price on the shelf, lower the price if someone uses cash at the point of sale. And let's say you're operating in a state that has a no surcharge law, one of the three remaining we don't yet serve. And, you're, and you've taken that approach. And imagine if someone comes into the store and asks, well, that's interesting. Why do you have this program? I mean, there is a theory that if the if the clerk answers, oh, it's because of the cost of credit card processing. We all know that's the case, right? right. If they answer that, they may violate the law and the right. business may have violated the law. And now you see why with that sort of Damocles hanging over their head, it has a very chilling effect. No one even wants to do it. That's why it's so important to get this clarity. Yeah. Hey, real, real quick, Jonathan, um, and I hope, excuse me, I know James has some more questions, but sure. I'm just wondering, can you 
refresh our memories on what the three states remaining are yeah. that that ban surcharging at this yeah, point. Colorado, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, all right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read a little quote here, uh, Jonathan. So this is from the the court document, and uh, it was one of my favorite quotes actually in the document because I think it applies to our industry. So uh, this is a quote from the document from the courts in Kansas. Merchants remain obligated to absorb the cost of a consumer's choice to use a credit card because the no surcharge statute makes it illegal to communicate differential pricing as a surcharge. When businesses are unable to pass on the cost of credit card acceptance as a surcharge, that cost is often built into the cost of all goods and services sold by that business, which in turn raises prices for all customers regardless of whether they use credit or non-credit to the customers who pay by credit card. Mm-hmm. For the average credit card user, this amounts to over $1,100 a year, uh, you know, an additional cost. So, you know, what I'd love for you to talk about, Jonathan, you know, when we look at that quote, it goes to something I've been talking about for a long time, which is that these programs I personally have, have you know, come to believe are really best not only for the business owner because they get to save money, but also for the consumer so can you talk a little bit about your feelings about that and, and kind of this part of the document? Absolutely. And you are right. It's best for everybody. Uh, that's why surcharging is one of the few issues, maybe the only issue supported by both Elizabeth Warren and the Cato Institute. I love to point that out. It's, it's strong bipartisan support. And that's a great quote you read. It's so accurate. You know, typically business owners, when rates go up, have raised their prices on all customers, which means people who are using cash and debit are paying more for someone else's rewards. So it's a lot more fair to pass on the processing fee only to those who are getting the rewards and convenience of credit. Uh, That's what we think people should do. Now, I would also say I'm very pro-card. I find it important to point that out because another benefit for consumers of surcharging is a lot of our merchants are right on that line between taking cards or not taking cards. They often Mm -hmm. don't take cards because of the cost or when our sales team talks to them, they say, it's really good you called because we were actually considering shutting off card acceptance entirely. So we've actually seen surcharging change payments norms in could be industries like insurance, technology, IT products and services, logistics and transportation. Those are places where it's expanding the number of places you can use a credit card and that's increasing consumer choice. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, another another quote from the, from the decision that I found interesting was where it um, uh, reflects on the COVID pandemic and how that's shaping people's spending habits. I'm gonna read this quote if you don't mind. It says, following the onset of the coronavirus pandemic, the pressure on merchants to accept credit card payments has become even greater as consumers are reluctantly, increasingly reluctant to use cash which, you know, I've spoken a lot about on, on this podcast, but, you know, and I, and I, James and I have, have bandied this about, but I wanted to know what you think in terms of whether COVID is driving more business owners to explore new pricing options that allow them to pass on the cost of processing and how that's affecting Cardex, you know, and your push to, to uh, be able to work in all 50 states. Yeah, it, it certainly is, Patty. That's a great question because now maybe more than ever before, this is a really difficult balancing act for many mm-hmm. merchants. I mean, I mentioned at the top of the call, they need to economize on expense in this challenging growth environment. At the same time, this was data by Visa that came out, over 85% of customers expect to be able to make a digital payment. So yeah. you do need to offer the credit card option. I think that's very important. Right. And because of the pandemic, more and more 
payments are moving online, which is great in one sense, but at the same time, it's more costly for the merchant right. to accept. Mm -hmm. And surcharging has a huge presence in card not presence, great space for surcharging. So as you know, in, in April, further interchange increases are coming. Right. And those are specifically affecting card not present, perhaps most of all. So I think this is very timely relief. I think it came out at exactly the right time. Yeah, I, there's so many things about it that, you know, I, I thought it was so interesting if we kind of pivot a little bit to yeah. the other side, right? So this is Cardex, basically, uh, I mean, for all intents and purposes, against the Attorney General of Kansas and, and the enforcement of this law, the surcharge ban. And I thought their arguments against Cardex, quite frankly, were, were not very well done. <laughs> I'm trying to give a nice way to say this is not coming across the wrong way, but at least in my opinion, looking at them, I was kind of like, wow, that, that was the evidence. So, um, you know, let me read this one quote and then I'll kind of get your thoughts about, you know, this, this argument where, you know, surcharging is bad because it's going to in some way limit the cash that people, it was really a strange argument. So here's yeah. the, quote. the court said, there's no actual empirical evidence before the court of harm to consumers or commerce past or present in restricting the merchants in this action from communicating to their customers that they will charge a surcharge for a credit card purchase. So can you talk a little bit about the kind of some of these arguments against, you know, what you were trying to accomplish and what you believe that led you to, to file this action? Yeah. You know, I feel that framing your prices as a surcharge is the most clear way to communicate it. And I, I think I've said that before, you know, Right. I pay a cost to accept credit. If you want to use credit, I will pass on that cost. It logically follows. It's easy to understand. That's surcharging. And you'll note, it's also accurate information. And it's a way for consumers to learn that the plastic they carry has a cost associated with it. Mm -hmm. And knowing that, they can now make an informed payment decision. decision. I don't think we should have laws that keep people in the dark, keep them from hearing things that are truthful. And you know, regarding the, the point about the state policy interests, I do want to call back to, I thought it was very important to preempt some of the objections that we saw in other cases. So I think we took all the knowledge we had about how it had played out in other jurisdictions, and we put a very strong factual record forward in order to sort of close those drawers, let's put it that way. And you know, another thing I'll point out about the First Amendment is part of the First Amendment test is even if you accept the policy interests are valid, is there a less restrictive thing you could do to meet those policy interests? Could the state meet those policy interests right. without restricting speech to this extent? And in the case of no surcharge laws, clearly the answer is yes. They're, they're, a, they're a ban. It's basically as invasive as it comes. You don't have to ban surcharging. You could, to the point you made earlier, James, if they wanted to, they could cap the maximum differential between cash and credit. You could cap the surcharge amount. You could require disclosure. You could ban deceptive practices or enforce the existing laws you have on the books against false advertising. But you know, like we discussed earlier, that wasn't an issue in this case because both parties agreed this was truthful and non-misleading speech. Mm -hmm. That's why I thought it was really important right. to anchor it in, in those facts about Cardex. Yeah, and, and it was interesting. I, I did find that very interesting. And to your point earlier that, you know, to, to be clear, this is not a ruling that says they are taking down their surcharge ban. This is a right. ruling that says their surcharge ban does not apply to Cardex. Right. I mean, it was really that specific. And, and I think that was smart on your part, because obviously for business uh, aspects, but I think also for the case itself that, hey, you know, this is what we do. Yep. And so what we do 
should not be prohibited in your state. And I think it really left them with kind of nowhere to turn as far as arguments against. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons why it seemed like there was a little bit of grasping maybe to find a reason to, to, to keep it, but it was, uh, it was interesting. So, yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, it was really important how you framed the, the, um, the challenge also, you know, Jonathan, and that's why the way you framed it, it seemed so logical that it was really hard. I think it was really, became really hard for the state to, to refute it. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Okay, so moving on here, I got a couple others real quick, and so I, I really wanted to get through these because I think it's such such, such interesting topics here for uh -huh. right now at this point. So, in this same section, the document points to the fundamental unfairness. This has been one of my favorite uh, hypocrisies. Right. Uh, they exempted themselves basically right. from the surcharge ban. So if you're a municipality or a city or something, well, then they can charge a surcharge. That's fine, just not private businesses. And right. so. Talk about this a little bit, Jonathan. Is is this something that you see that is a pretty strong argument that carries some weight in the courts? Or what are your thoughts on this? It absolutely, it absolutely is a strong argument. You know, I thought it was very important to say every state that bans surcharges, including the three that I mentioned a moment ago, allow the government to surcharge. Or perhaps better said, they say when the government does it, it's not illegal. And yeah. people don't like hypocrisy. It goes against our common sense. If it's right. for reasons the state says then why does the state do it themselves, their own taxpayers in the cases you mentioned? So, you know, uh, it really undercuts that argument about the state policy interest. And I know the court felt the same way. Oh, yeah. It's like if if surcharging is against the state's policy interests, why is the state? Why doing is it? the state doing it? Yeah. I couldn't agree more. You know, yeah. that was that was a, an interesting one. And then, then hypocrisy. I, yeah. Um, and then my final one here, as far as from the document itself, is my favorite quote, uh, yeah. which uh, from I can't pronounce this judge's name. But how do you pronounce this name? Joe Flat? You know, I don't want to take a guess, to be honest. This is from, uh, I know <laughs> you're from, from the Florida we'll, case. We'll I don't want to, I don't want to guess notes. on the record, but it's, yeah, we'll, it's we'll put it in the show notes. It's an interesting name. The judge in the case. The judge yeah, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, he, this is the quote. Uh, such, mm -hmm. such a law, talking, referencing the law here in Kansas, the surcharge ban, such a law does not ban surcharging. It yeah. merely targets expression or speech and could be called a surcharges are fine. Just don't call them that law. <laughs> <laughs> I know that was great. Wasn't it? So I really thought that was, that was kind of interesting. So, you know, let's take this opportunity, Jonathan, you know, reading this document, there's no, you couldn't come away from this document, not feeling very optimistic about the chances of a 50 state <laughs> surcharge. I mean, the yeah. court seemed to be, you know, at least as, as it relates to Cardax, right? So the yeah. court seemed to be very, uh, you know, amenable to your position. So tell us a little bit more about, you know, how you felt the court handled it. Is that the, is that the perception you got? And then also, how do you see this playing out with these remaining three states? Yeah, we're, we're very pleased with the result. Uh, I don't feel we were surprised because we knew we had strong precedent, but in litigation, you never know. So we were very happy. Uh, and as it pertains to all 50 states, you know, the strategy really does have legs. To marry together, on the one hand, you have strong legal precedent. And on the other hand, you have a technology that guarantees price transparency. It guarantees over and above what's literally required by the card brands. We actually do a lot of what we consider surcharging best practices. So if you have that also, and you put it together with strong legal precedent, I think it makes for a really strong case. And we bring that and we go to lawmakers and we go to attorneys general, or we go to courts in some cases, and we get them to approve it. And you know, we've been actively evaluating our option in each of the remaining states. And we intend to be, and we will be a 50 state provider. It's very important to me. You know, some people have asked, I should say, if you're already in, now we cover 95% of the country by population. 
And they say, look, if you're already in 95% of the country by population, why do you work hard on this? Why do you incur the, the cost? And I'll say a few things about that. The first is in Kansas, we had merchants who were calling us. They wanted to use our solution. We previously couldn't help them with that. That was important to me. And we also have ISO and agent partners who live there or live nearby and they wanna sell in that market. And that was also a use case I took very seriously. Finally, uh, in addition to that, Cardex is now the, the surcharging partner to multiple Fortune 1000 brands. And these are companies that have customers in virtually every state or in the case of some in literally every state. And they want a national pricing strategy. They don't want carve outs for different state laws when they go live with us. So this was also very important to our enterprise merchants. Yeah, yeah, I love yeah. I think that's so important going after the large merchant accounts, the, the monsters, you know, I think that's been a, uh, you know, a great long term play for Cardex all along. Um, you know, and, and again, you can look at other countries, Australia, et cetera, that have implemented, you know, surcharging with. And it's interesting, like in Australia, actually, more of the larger companies do surcharging than the smaller ones. That's correct. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and again, I think the reason is because they're able to do this, you know, across the country. It's not a carve out. And so I think that's that's really important. So. And also it's important too that there's so much of this traffic is online, as you've noted, Jonathan, and so many ISOs and agents are selling across state lines. I mean, think about it. Massachusetts is right next to New York. I know agents in upstate New York who are always selling over Massachusetts. And, you know, that really gloms up their, their selling strategies. I agree. Yeah, yeah for sure. So I've got one one topic left, a little bit of a, a, you know, maybe a little bit off topic here, but I wanted to cover this with you today, Jonathan. So obviously in our industry right now, I think the big confusion, you know, as people are listening to this episode, a lot of them are saying, well, okay, this all sounds really good, but I sell cash discounting. I don't sell surcharging. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when we really break down, you know, the way cash discounting is being done by and large, because we have, what we'll, we'll call it a compliant cash discount or a true cash discount where we're raising the price on the shelf and then we're reducing the price. I personally know of only one provider that's really pushing that. Right. Everybody else. It's hard to do. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Merchants don't want to change the price yeah. on their shelf. If they wanted to do that, they wouldn't be calling us in the first place. Exactly. Why do they you need know? you to do that for them? They can right. do it themselves. Right. So okay. I agree 100% with that. So now we're left with these other programs, whatever we want to call them, right. and they're using a non-cash adjustment or a service fee. And really, other than the signage, I mean, the only difference between what they're doing and kind of a um, normal surcharge, I know there's a lot of other compliance aspects, but when you take that out of the picture and say, we don't care about that, really, all they're doing is they're adding this onto the debit card. Uh -huh. So we're, we're basically surcharging credit and debit. So I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on this in general. We see it taking off. We see it gaining in popularity. How is this going to play out? I mean, I haven't seen Visa take any like crazy significant action. Or is it eventually they're going to allow surcharging on debit as they do in other countries? Like, how do you think this is going to play out? I'm just curious. Well, the action is coming, I feel, at the level of the large acquirers. Um, I think the card brands communicate vigorously with the acquirers, and then they mm -hmm. want the acquirers to police their own merchants and their own ISOs. I know some acquirers, actually, that when you go up for your, your ISO review, they actually will go on your website and they'll see what solutions you offer. And it's out of compliance. They'll give you a call. They'll tell you to take it down. But as you said, you know, for the for the purpose of the of the thought experiment, let, let's set the rules to one side entirely. Let's just talk about charging fees to a debit card, yes or no. You know, I like it as a product feature. I think even without the background of the the card brand rules, I think I would still like it as a product feature because if you have debit as a no fee option, it does respond to the number one objection merchants have, mm -hmm. which is, what do you think that is? You hear it all the time too. Yeah, yeah, my customers aren't going to like it. 
you're, you got it. My customers aren't going to like it. So if you can say, I have a no fee payment option, you know, you're not turning customers away. Right. And we also know as the solution provider or the agent, we're not moving payers to cash or check, but we don't make margin. You know, the other thing I would say, just in terms of our particular business strategy, of course, it's a, it's a big country. Other people do different things. Our ideal customer profile is a merchant that's very credit heavy. They do a lot more credit than debit. That comes with the somewhat higher ticket size that we serve in our vertical. So, sure. but I feel that you're right. On, on the point about the uh, state law background, I feel that the courts and lawmakers have not historically gravitated to the issue of debit cards. In fact, I don't think they're really aware of that issue until we bring it up. They more typically gravitated to the issue of surprise fees or excessive fees, like we right. talked about previously. Right. But in this case, I, we actually did put it in the factual record. And you'll yeah, see in the order that the judge, mm -hmm. Judge Brooms noted that with card X, debit cards are charged no fee. That was part of a fact pattern. But you know, the last thing I'll say, just, just zooming out, not just this issue, but many issues generally, I think that it's incumbent on our industry to shape the conversation about best practices. You know, mm -hmm. you will see communication from even the states that permit surcharging about the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it. You know, I've been uh, predicting that for a long time. I've said that on other episodes of this podcast together. And just a couple of weeks ago, the uh, Tennessee attorney general came out with communication to that effect. Here's the right way to do surcharging. Here's the wrong way. And we're watching. And that's what to my point about acquires. That's what has the large processors in my experience still taking surcharging compliance so seriously, even when it is allowed, because it remains a very regulated practice. Sure. Yeah. 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 Super interesting. So, well, you know, as always a wealth of information, Jonathan, uh, I know Patty and I always love having you on the podcast. You always bring so much information to the audience. Um, I know a lot of our partners, uh, you know, our, our audience, people in the industry are going to want to reach out, learn more about Cardex, learn more about the solutions that you provide, whether they're a large ISO and acquirer looking for a compliant card, you know, solution to sell or an individual agent. So can you tell us where you would send them to learn more about you and about Cardex? Yeah, absolutely. I would love it if they emailed partners at Cardex.com. A lot of what we do is sales enablement. We support ISOs and agents throughout the country like we were talking about. So if that's you, please do reach out. And, you know, I do want to say one, one thing you, you mentioned, what Cardex does. For those who don't know, it may be the first time they're yeah. hearing about us or our company. What Cardex does in short is automate the whole surcharging scope. Right. That's compliance, IT, and operations. And by the way, those IT and operations pain points and surcharging are very real, especially for the middle market and large enterprise merchants we were talking about a moment ago. Mm -hmm. But our goal is to automate all that through technology, make it as easy as traditional merchant processing. And you can contrast that with another provider, perhaps who, if they take a narrow scope, they're going to leave some or all of those pain points for the merchant. So that's really the Cardex value proposition. But like I said, please do email us at, at partners at cardex.com. I'll say one more thing. If you come to LinkedIn, you can go and follow the Cardex company page because in just a few days from now, I think you're hearing it here first. In fact, we're going to announce a launch event for Cardex portal. That's our next generation platform for surcharging. Really excited to get it out there because, uh, it's a very big launch. In fact, not all of our team has the benefit of seeing it this way because they weren't involved from the ground level necessarily. I feel it's as big a launch as when we first launched the company. So I think it's going to make waves in a really positive way. So we'd love for you to hear about it first and come and take a look. Awesome. And, uh, Jonathan, I, and I, you know, I will put in my two cents in as much as I talk about cash discounting, as you know, um, I really do believe that there is such a value, especially with the medium larger merchants as well, you know, to being able to say this is compliant, this mm -hmm. is, you know, fully automated, 
how, you know, this is e-commerce ready. You know, you've really done such a great job of taking, you know, it's interesting to me, most of the cash discount companies are really struggling to get any kind of decent technology out there, which cash discounting, the way it's being done is so simplistic compared to surcharging with all the complexities of debit versus credit and the the compliance and all that. So, you know, kudos to you doing a fantastic job of making this great technology and these great solutions available. So yeah, definitely hopefully our audience will reach out partners. There's partners at cardex.com, right? You got it. Partners at cardex.com. Awesome. Thanks awesome. so much, Jonathan. Appreciate your time as always. I appreciate it. And James and Patty, we're on to the 48th state now, right? So we'll yeah, see you there. Onward. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Thanks okay. a lot. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, hey, everybody. So Valor Paytech, of course, the official sponsor of the podcast. If you have not already gone there, maybe you're living in a cave or under a rock. And <laughs> you haven't heard about it yet. Uh, this terminal and this overall system is really taking the industry by storm. It is processor agnostic, yeah. uh, meaning whatever processor you sell for, odds are Valor Paytech integrates with them. It is a standalone terminal, but it's a standalone terminal that can integrate seamlessly with the online portal, with uh, you know, uh, table service, uh, you know, e-invoicing, all of these things. So fantastic. Go to ccsalespro.com slash valor v-a-l-o-r and you know one of the things i don't think we've talked about in a while patty is this uh, customer feedback actually i was just going to bring that up james I, you know i think that that's one of the niftier things about the solution because it really engages the customer with the merchant gives the merchant valuable feedback gives them you know the opportunity to you know engender or sticky customers on their part you know and and it's 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 cute. It takes no time, you know, happy or sad, just click on it, you right. know, and if you weren't happy, well, that gives the merchant something, something that they can come back and say, Hey, I'm sorry. You didn't have a great experience. You know, here's a coupon. Come on back. Absolutely. Right? So you know, just to clarify, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a great solution because again, on the consumer side, when they get that E that email receipt, um, mm-hmm. They can just literally click on one of the face options if they're happy or sad. Um, and then again, if they're sad, that can actually send their information over to somebody at the store that can then respond right back to that email and say, sorry, you had a bad experience to your point. Here's a coupon or whatever. Right. It is. So if you're interested in any of that, or if you're just tired of selling the same old terminals and you're looking for a different option, that's a lower cost option, but also one that has a lot more features, cash discounting built in, surcharging built in. Just head over to and processor agnostic. Let's not forget that's really important. <laughs> uh, head over to ccsalespro.com slash Valor V-A-L-O-R. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you are an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. So Patty, today I wanted to just very quickly talk about um, a really interesting marketing tactic slash trend that I've been seeing. Um, and so this is coming from uh, working with a lot of uh, larger companies with our ISO AMP uh, technology of you know statement analysis. Um, we've been uh, designing a lot of custom proposal templates. And one of the things I've seen that's very interesting is a lot of companies now are including and they're, they're it's like when, when they come to us, they're like, if you want us to sign up with you, you have to provide this to us. They're including the cash discount projected savings on every proposal, even if it's for traditional processing. 
Right. Um, and they're including it prominently on the cover page or, you know, uh, prominently uh, on another page. And so the idea being, hey, um, you know, and I'm thinking right now of four different large companies that we've seen this where mm-hmm. they're saying, hey, you know, with us, you could save $2,000 a year with, you know, this proposal. And by the way, cash discounting savings would be $34 or whatever. Okay. Well, it's, it's crazy different, right? Because it's yeah. like, you know, 30 basis points of savings versus 300, you know? So it's a huge difference. And so whether it's surcharging or cash discounting, they're kind of putting whatever their you know program options are, they're putting all of those on that cover page. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've actually really enjoyed diving into that and figuring out how to do that. Um, right. and, you know, then working with our developers to code it and our designers to make the proposal templates been a lot of fun. But I think regardless of how you're, you know, presenting to the merchant, you would be really well advised to think about, you know, especially, you know, when you have all these individual sales reps out there, you know, I think that the proposal is something that there's a lot of room left to be more strategic about Mm -hmm. that. And so, you know, you have this opportunity where your salespeople are, you know, making five to 10, maybe even 20 presentations a month for your top producers they're not selling all of them, but they're making all of these, you know, uh, these presentations, you know, what do you want to get across to these business owners? This is a great opportunity. And I, what I find is (laughs) I find that some of the ISOs that have struggled, they're really providing nothing to their agents. And so the agent is just kind of supposed to put a spreadsheet together or they're providing just the worst looking thing ever. Um, You know, it's just vanilla spreadsheet. And it's like, well, you know, doing that, you'll understand that is a document that that merchant is going to throw in the garbage can when your rep leaves if they don't make the sale. And you're also losing an opportunity to maybe promote technology solutions or other things that they might like, as well as additional savings from like a cash discount. So what we find is having something really well done, and you can use a marketing company to do this graphic design, you know, we do it for our clients that use statement analysis services. But you know, when you want to have a really nice, uh, you know, design there, it's really a great idea to put something together that actually promotes things and looks nice so that maybe when your agent leaves, maybe they kind of say, well, that was a nice document. That's got some good information. I think I'm going to file that away. Mm-hmm. And you'd be surprised how many of those might come back. Or they might say to that agent that really isn't passionate about cash discounting or surcharging, but they might say, well, what is this 34000 a year in savings for surcharging? What's that? You know, and now all of a sudden the agent's saying, well, let me explain that. And, and now you're, you're all of a sudden, you know, getting a much higher margin, providing right. more savings. And of course, as we talked to Jonathan Razi about earlier in the episode, um, there's a lot of benefits to the merchant and to the consumer there. So right. just a little trend that I've noticed, I'd really encourage the ISOs out there um, and even the, the individual agents, you know, think more strategically about that presentation. Right. Um, you know, the, the age of, you know, the vanilla looking spreadsheet that's confusing or the, um, you know, the writing it down on a piece of paper, making notes on the statement. Yes, you can still close deals like that, but you are leaving some deals on the table um, and you're just not presenting yourself in the most professional light. So I'd really encourage you right. spend the extra money to work with, you know, a design company or work with a company like getisoamp.com to do the statement analysis and the proposal templates. But whatever you're doing, make sure it's well-designed, well-thought-out, and it looks professional, and make sure you're promoting the things that you care about in that uh, presentation. Just be more strategic. I mean, that's really important. It's not just selling. It's being strategic. Yep, absolutely. Great stuff, James. Thanks. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. 
If you're not reading the Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. RCP, which is a retail management consulting firm, has published results of a survey of retailers. Now, the, 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 the survey was mostly large North American retailers, but I think the, the implications, um, you know, the results have some implications throughout the retail chain. Um, and I thought, you know, it might be good to share this so that uh, our listeners can think of uh, the insights and the gauge for where their customers are or should be thinking about. Right. Uh, 85% of retailers surveyed rank growing and enhancing digital commerce as a top priority for 2021. No surprise. You know, no surprise there, right? You know, particularly given the uh, explosive growth of online shopping in 2020. Right. But digital still remains just part of the equation. You know, the store remains central to the customer particularly as we've discussed in the past, you know, with many online orders picked up or fulfilled from the stores or curbside. Um, so that may, means the focus on holistic customer experience is becoming ever and ever more paramount. And I thought it was interesting that 67% of those surveyed ranked enhancing the customer experience their number two business priority in 2021. Huh, okay. Um, which is, you know, that's a pretty good share. Yeah. Now, 52% said providing customers with flexible and convenient pickup and delivery options mm. is a top customer engagement plan. Wow, 52%, huh? 52%, yeah. Uh, but wow. many still are still struggling with integrating online order management and in-store POS technologies. You know, in fact, 67%, again, uh, you know, two thirds said their top POS priority is adding or enhancing order management system integration. And 52% said omni-channel capabilities were top priority. Yeah, yeah. You know. And you know, you know, I just, I have to pause here for one second. Sure, sure. That like, it's so crazy. Like this is a moment in time. And I know our industry has been, when I say our industry, I mean merchant sales professionals and ISOs have been absolutely horrible at taking advantage of this opportunity. But this is a moment in time where there's an opportunity where small retail shops and small restaurants and stuff, I mean, they really could spring ahead of their larger competitors Yes, in, in yes. a lot of ways. I mean, they're local. And so it's like when we're talking about delivery and pickup and fulfillment, mm-hmm. you know, those are things that they can actually do better than Amazon. Of course, of because course they're they there. And so like, if I want to order something and I want to get it, you know, this afternoon, I can get that. And I think, you know, we're going to have a podcast interview coming up in a few weeks. I'm still working it out, you know, get on the schedule, but with a, an organization that they do online ordering and delivery. So like mm-hmm. they're setting up these restaurants with their own delivery service, you know, right. Right. and like right. these things are, are there. And I think, you know, if you don't understand that consumer expectations, you know, it's, it's interesting right. to me, merchant sales reps, it's like if you asked them and said, you know, if you have two companies to buy things from, you can buy from two competitors. One of them offers free delivery. One of them, you have to go pick it up. Which are you going to do? Almost every merchant sales rep out there is going to say delivery. Right. And then you say, are you talking to your merchants about setting up delivery so they don't go out of business? And it's right. like, no, I never even mentioned it. It's like, exactly, right? You no. Know, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it really yeah. is. Anyway, go ahead. I mean, well, you know, and the, I think the point is, is that, you know, the customer experience today is nothing like it was even two or three years ago. Right. 
And right. in two or three years, it's going to be nothing like it is today. I mean, right. we're in rapid fire change territory right now, you know, and um, and, it, and I, I agree with you. I mean, the smaller merchants are much more nimble. They have technologies that are available to them that can almost be done with a flip of a switch. They don't have to, they don't have to rebuild an entire custom point of sale, you know, national, you know, solution and infrastructure and come up with their own in-house delivery. Like these big companies, you know, Best Buy is not, not going to work with, you know, one of these deliveries or like they're going to have their own thing and it takes a long time to set that up. And so you really could get a jump on that. You know, you really could. Yeah. Well, I had three more, three or four more data points. I want to point out, uh, and I thought this was interesting. Um, number of retailers prioritizing POS software upgrades and re- and replacement, fifty two percent, compared to forty percent last year. Wow. Okay. You know that's a that's a big jump. I thought um, four in ten retailers rank uh, customer identification and personalization of the shopping experience. Wow. Yeah. As a big a big uh, a big priority. Same goes for mobile experiences stands to reason sure. uh, and i thought this was interesting 33 percent want to equip their sales associates with mobile tools now that's a lot easier for a small merchant to do than, than a business, for example yeah for sure and uh 22 rank self-service as a big uh customer engagement priority wow no so here come the kiosks we did a yep. podcast uh, who was that with i'm trying to remember all of a sudden i'm trying to remember who that was with too yeah, I was to to, we need to get them back on at some point uh-huh. to talk more about that because that's a trend I, I could see I've, I've actually heard a lot of uh you know behind the scenes stuff about kind of as things open up and obviously the um, you know, regardless of your political affiliations, the $15 minimum wage conversation and, mm-hmm. and even compromise bills are looking at 10, 11, 12. Right. Um, you know, I think that's also, of course, is a, a naturally going to lead to more kiosks and things of that nature. And I also think, you know, the even absent that, you know, the uh, you have a lot of merchants who have laid off staff because of COVID, right? right? right. They can come back on with kiosk, which is going to be a lot more um, yes. uh Re- re- relative, I think. You know, not only is it cost effective, but I think it's more relative. Um, because personally, you know, even after all this stuff gets better, I don't know about you, but I'm not going to be standing in a line at McDonald's. <laughs> you know? I never stood in a line at McDonald's anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, it's been a while for me too. Right. You, know, you know what I'm saying? What you I mean, mean, yeah. You know, no, but you know, you know how I am. I mean, I'm like, oh, yeah. you know, if you don't deliver it to me, you forget about it. I'm, yeah, I'm well, of course. <laughs> and as you know, I'm out in the middle of nowhere, so getting somebody right. to deliver is a big deal. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I told you before how excited we were when we realized we were we just moved and we were within oh, that door. Dash, right? We were the DoorDash and Walmart uh, grocery delivery, and we're like, oh. we're done. Now, I'll tell you right now, if I find any local grocery store in our area, even if they charge more than Walmart, if they have delivery, You'll I do will it. go local. But right. again, I think I'm, I think, you know, it's interesting because I think, you know, that's how most consumers feel right now. It's like, do I want to support Walmart? No, I really don't. I actually would right. much rather support local. But am I willing to give up? Am I willing to give up three hours a week of my life in order to go grocery shopping? No, I'm not. No. So, you know. Well, you know, it's also interesting with grocery delivery. I grew up a little bit before you did. And, <laughs> and, and grocery delivery was a big deal in the 60s, in the early, especially in the early 60s. Absolutely. Yes. It was, you know, these little stores. And my mom, you know, had six kids. Right. You know, she wasn't going to drag six kids to the grocery store. She'd call up the local Grand Union and say, 
you know, here's my shopping list, and they'd bring it, and you know, she'd right. tip the guy a quarter. <laughs> you know, right, exactly. Um, so in a way, we're kind of going back to where we began. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's, I think it's I think it's uh, just really intriguing hearing these numbers and seeing kind of the direction that's, that's happening here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I think it's definitely worth worth keeping tabs on, yep. keeping your merchants aware of. Absolutely. As always, thanks, Patty. Great sure, time. James. This episode of the Merchant Sales Podcast was brought to you by Valor Paytech, the technology company that is revolutionizing cash discounting and surcharging with innovative features like dual mid support, waive the fee options, and even adding non-cash adjustment charges to tips. Now, all of this is made possible by a variety of technology devices and solutions such as gateways, tabletop point of sale devices, and features like SMS text messaging and e-invoicing, all with cash discounting in mind. Valor Paytech, bold ideas, smart execution. Make sure you head over to ccsalespro.com slash valor, V-A-L-O-R, ccsalespro.com slash Valor, V-A-L-O-R. Schedule your free demo today and watch videos and learn more about this amazing technology solution. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. And we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.